This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, you will hear from Deputy Secretary of Defense, Dr. Kathleen H. Hicks, from a recent Ronald Reagan Institute event. A panel discussion will follow with insights from the Honorable Michelle Flournoy, former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Representative Elaine Luria, U.S. Representative from Virginia, and the Honorable Mac Thornberry, former Chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. So nice to see so many people here in the building today, friends, colleagues, and we welcome those watching online as well. Now, in every generation, in every administration, kind of the Washington crowd here watches with great interest to see who's appointed to fill the positions of a new administration. It's kind of like our version of the NFL draft. <laughs> and now sometimes you hear about an appointment and you say to yourself, okay, that's kind of an interesting choice. That's not entirely a compliment. Other times, it feels like the person has the background and expertise so well-matched for the position that it's like an obvious choice. That's the reaction I had when I heard Dr. Kathleen Hicks would be Deputy Secretary of Defense. She's a leader for whom the role just made perfect sense. Now, I've had the pleasure of knowing the Deputy Secretary for many years now. And I've learned from her that whole time. Uh, I had the good fortune to serve with her on the National Defense Strategy Commission in 2018. And I got to say, I was appointed by the Republican side, Chairman Mac Thornberry. Dr. Hicks was not. Uh, and I just didn't know what the dynamics would be like. And I think my primary takeaway, beyond just being impressed with her knowledge, her intelligence and, and her kindness and decency was Kath listened, uh, which is a quality that many in Washington don't have. <laughs> they like to talk. Uh, and I learned a lot that she was willing to listen even from someone like me. And I think that's probably why we had uh, a commission report with consensus across all the commissioners. And over the years, um, She's been a regular at a Reagan National Defense Forum, where her voice really commands respect from both sides of the aisle. Uh, I think Kath got bored with me calling her up every year around this time, actually, so it's no surprise you're here now. Uh, Kath, uh, we need you on a panel. Again? Yes, again. And uh, really always willing not only to participate, but advise and, and, and give me and the Reagan Institute good uh, advice in terms of who should be there, what issues we should talk about as we brought together and bring together the national defense community, which I'm still very grateful for. Her pedigree is impeccable, a PhD from MIT, senior vice president as the Henry A. Kissinger Chair and director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic International Studies. She, of course, was a principal deputy undersecretary of defense for policy in the Obama administration. Led Many leading strategic reviews at the Department of Defense, the 2012 Defense Strategic Guidance, the 2010 Quadrennial Defense Review, a relic of the past, but certainly made a big impact. Then crafted guidance for future capabilities, military posture, contingency and theater plans. Kath is clearly not, no stranger to strategy and planning. Now, in her current role as Deputy Secretary, 
She's tasked with overseeing internal management of the Pentagon, as all deputy secretaries do. But her background is so stellar and, and known and, and expertise in strategic thinking that her responsibilities are truly broader than that. That's why we're so honored to have her here today to talk about the administration's vision for the strategy we need to meet the global threats we face and how we can properly resource that strategy. Now, given how much the world has transformed in the just the past few months, the national defense strategy is, of course, highly anticipated. This is the unclassified version. For those who have seen the classified one uh, since March, uh, they, they know what will come, though they can't speak about it. And what I think we all know is that it will be highly consequential. How does the sifting security environment in Europe change things, given, of course, the war in Ukraine and Russian aggression? Even as the strategic conflict, the, this conflict excuse me, rages on, we have to focus on the Indo-Pacific, specifically China, and how to respond to their investments in advanced technologies that, of course, are redefining the future of competition and conflict. And, of course, how much do we need to spend to sustain all of these priorities? So we'll have a wide-ranging conversation today, from threats to strategy to budget and more. So I want to thank everyone for joining us, and please welcome one of the sharpest minds in government, the 35th Deputy Secretary of Defense, Dr. Kathleen Hicks. Hopefully this mic is on. You'd think after having run a lot of think tank events, I would know better than to wear a dress on a day when I'm supposed to speak. But I think this will work. Um, and also, they've elevated me to my highest height ever. Um, so first of all, great thanks to Roger and for the full team here, um, to the Reagan Institute for hosting today's event. Um, I have had a, the great pleasure of working with Roger for years in the past um, and attending, of course, the events out west. Um, and you all do really important work. And I will say, I think it's a testament um, today's event, I hope, to our ability to continue to bridge across really challenging political divides, uh, to have a conversation on serious topics and keep that going on across the political spectrum. So I think, thank you all for hosting me. So I'm here today to talk a little bit about the national defense strategy and the president's fiscal year 2023 defense budget request. As Secretary Austin noted when he was addressing the Reagan National Defense Forum back in December, Ronald Reagan, the 40th president, was someone who loved democracy and had an implacable opposition to autocracy. Just walking through the halls here today really reinforces that from the many quotes um, and artifacts that are, that are here in this building. President Biden shares those core convictions about the importance of protecting our democracy, which today faces a myriad of challenges. The people in Ukraine remain foremost on our minds. Russia poses an acute threat to the international system, as illustrated by its ongoing war of choice and its brutal tactics. Our national defense strategy fully accounts for Russia's threats in Europe and beyond. But even as we confront Russia's aggression and malign activities, the strategy is clear that China is our military's most consequential strategic competitor and pacing challenge. And our strategy also acknowledges that we face additional persistent regional threats, including those emanating from Iran, 
North Korea, and violent extremist organizations, as well as transboundary challenges like climate change that affect our missions and operations. In an address to the American people in 1983, President Reagan spoke about his defense budget request in this way. Budget is much more than a long list of numbers, for behind all the numbers lies America's ability to prevent the greatest of human tragedies and preserve our free way of life in a sometimes dangerous world. Similarly, this administration built our budget request in direct response to the objectives of our national defense strategy. Our strategy has four priority objectives. First, defending the homeland, pace to the multi-domain threat that China poses today and can in the future. Second, deterring strategic attacks. Third, deterring aggression while being prepared to prevail in conflict prioritizing the PRC challenge in the Indo-Pacific, then the Russia challenge in Europe. And finally, building a resilient joint force defense ecosystem. The President's fiscal year 23 request of $773 billion, a roughly 8.1% increase over the 22 request, and 4% above the just inked FY 2022 omnibus, makes the investments we need to implement the strategy by pursuing three approaches which connect our means to our ends. Our first approach is integrated deterrence. We seek to network our efforts across domains, theaters, and the spectrum of conflict to ensure that the U.S. military, in close cooperation with the rest of the U.S. government and our allies and partners, makes the folly and costs of aggression very clear. The combat credibility of the US military to fight and win is the cornerstone of integrated deterrence. That is why our top line request for fiscal year 23 includes $276 billion for procurement and for research development test and evaluation. And that is across land, air, sea, cyber, and space domains that must be netted together for integrated deterrence. Of note, across that spectrum of conflict, we also are investing $34.4 billion in recapitalizing the nuclear triad. Campaigning is our second approach, and it's related. Campaigning strengthens deterrence and enables us to gain advantage against the full range of competitors' coercive actions. The United States will operate forces, synchronize broader department efforts, and align department activities with other instruments of national power to undermine acute forms of competitor coercion, complicate adversaries' military preparations, and develop our own warfighting capabilities together with allies and partners. Readiness for the threats of today is central to campaigning, which is why we invest almost $135 billion in military readiness. And while we maintain the ability to respond across the globe, our campaigning efforts will be focused on the Indo-Pacific and Europe. Through the Pacific Deterrence Initiative and other regionally focused efforts, we make investments that support our comparative military advantage and bolster our posture and logistics in the Indo-Pacific region. Regarding Europe, our request supports the European Deterrence Initiative, U.S. European Command, and our ironclad commitment to NATO.
America's ongoing support to the people of Ukraine exemplifies these priorities in Europe. As President Biden has stated, in the perennial struggle for democracy and freedom, Ukraine and its people are on the front lines. Thanks to the responsiveness of this administration and the United States Congress, we've already delivered over $4 billion in security assistance to Ukraine since the start of the administration, and over $3 billion since the invasion on February 24th. That's remarkable. To ensure the Ukrainians continue to get the capabilities they need to defend themselves, the president has recently made a request for an additional $33 billion of assistance, 16 billion of which will be for the Department of Defense. Earlier this week, I was in Troy, Alabama with President Biden, visiting the Lockheed Martin facility where our Javelin missiles, which were an early game changer in Ukraine, where they are produced. We were there to thank the women and men who work at that facility for their tireless efforts in supplying the Department of Defense and our allies and partners. The work they do in Troy and across our entire defense industrial base is central to the execution of our national defense strategy. That's the third approach for connecting our ends to our means, building enduring advantage. This requires us to invest in our people, like providing the largest pay raise in 20 years to our military personnel, investing in affordable childcare, and ensuring their food and housing security. Building enduring advantage also means focusing intensely on innovation and modernization. And that is why we invest roughly $130 billion in RDT&E, our largest request ever. Finally, to combat the effects of climate change on our military, we invest $3 billion to deploy new technologies, create efficiencies, and prepare our infrastructure. As I've outlined, our budget request makes the critical investments we need to defend our nation. But our security depends on more than just dollars. We must outperform and out-innovate would-be threats. This means making sure that at the department, we knock down barriers that stymie innovative thinking. Simultaneously, DOD faces external barriers to innovation, like delays in annual appropriations. Moving forward, both inside and outside the five sides of the Pentagon, we must work to find solutions to problems such as these to realize the concepts and capabilities that this century demands. I'm going to conclude by just thanking you once again for inviting me to speak this morning. The Department of Defense today is ready to play its vital role in advancing President Biden's national security objectives as articulated in the national defense strategy. In connecting our ends, ways, and means, we have proceeded with the object objectivity and rigor that our national security demands. As Secretary Austin has said, in doing so, we seek a 21st century that is far more secure and far less bloody than the world of the 20th. I look forward to the discussion. Dr. Hicks for uh, those comments and again and for being here today. We're, we'll have a, about uh, 25 minutes or so of, of discussion and uh, then we'll open up uh, to the, the audience here for, for their questions. Um, right. Again, so appreciate you doing this. Um, writing a defense strategy, coordinating with the White House, uh, you want to make sure that follows a national security strategy, 
And of course, you probably think, all right, please let the world cooperate so all our assumptions and that strategy don't change. How's that going for you? It's going well. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, which part of it uh, would you like to tackle first? So we um, take let's take let's take the Russia piece. Okay. Um, Russia has not been shy about its intentions. We've seen from uh, Chechnya, Georgia, uh, Ukraine previously, Syria, and certainly even last spring with the exercises the Russians were were undertaking on their border with Ukraine, a very clear um, set of aggressive activities um, that signaled well to us this way in which we've talked about it as an acute threat. You combine that with the election interference, um, uh, you know, other other non-military approaches the Russians have undertaken, cyber activities, etc. Pretty clear pattern. So uh, the fact that this time they actually went across, which of course we, we had been signaling uh, well before the, the the next, this most recent invasion that they were going to do, was not a surprise in our strategy development. Um, and the United States has invested very well since 2014, in particular, in the European Deterrence Initiative. We built a lot of capability. There's over 100,000 US military forces today um, in and around the European theater. We're, we're in a good position there. So that piece, I think, um, fit very well with how we were thinking about uh, challenges of the future. Our NATO allies, I think, the biggest surprises around uh, uh, Ukraine are the fact that our NATO allies have really embrace the moment. Um, partners have as well, uh, both in the region and beyond. And of course, the Ukrainian people have really demonstrated that the will to, to fight for your country, to protect democracy, um, is probably the most powerful tool that any of us have in protecting the international order and our freedoms within it. So, uh, we'll get to the White House piece, coordinating the White House as well to get your NDS to follow the NSS. Of course, the national security strategy has not come out. and. Uh, Pretty creative way you guys handled that. Uncla classified delivered to the Congress, a two-page fact sheet, so you try to nest it within resources. Uh, but it certainly hasn't uh, been the rollout probably you anticipated. Get to that so in, in a second. Uh, we'll get to it now. So the okay. national security we'll go there now. strategy is, <laughs> you know, the, I, you pick a time when the national security strategy has followed a, a, an easy uh, course or pathway across any administration. I think it's right and appropriate to take your time on that strategy to get it right. A strategy is not a document. A strategy is something that you live and execute, and it should be constantly reviewed and updated. That's true of our NDS. It's true of the national security strategy. And I do anticipate you'll see that in the coming months. The, the NDS, by statute from the United States Congress, is required to be delivered in classified form, and we have done that with an unclassified summary, and we have done that. We would like to be above and beyond the rule of law, um, and in the spirit of uh, how we try to operate in the department, provide that unclassified, fuller, unclassified description. But it's appropriate to wait to see how the NSS um, is built out, so we make sure it's, it's best nested there. Well, let's stick on that thread for a minute. Um, back when the Bush 43 administration came into office. They rolled out their strategy, and of course, President uh, George W. Bush ran on a campaign of not doing humanitarian intervention. 9-11 happens, freedom agenda comes in. It was a, a major market shift in strategy. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. They changed. Is this moment a similar moment? It would seem to be based on your answer that the NDS, there's continuity, and you anticipated, is what I heard mm -hmm. you say, and the strategy anticipated, 
that Russia might do something like this. On the other hand, one could interpret that the national security strategy not coming out and you know, the reporting uh, suggests there could be more than just personnel changes, that there could be shifts in that strategy, perhaps suggests that what's happening in Europe, what's happening with Russia, means that there's a, nor uh, a shift in orientation from, from the White House as a result of the war in Ukraine. What's your take? I, no, my take is I think there is, a, a, first of all, a focus of time and energy on Ukraine. As I just pointed out, since February 24th, we've been just uh, moving at light speed uh, to support cross-diplomatic, economic, I mean, you know, toughest sanctions in history. The diplomatic effort is immense. The security assistance effort is immense. It takes a lot of time and energy, period, full stop. Um, I do think you'll see, see the themes, essentially, of where the NSS will, will end up, I think, will be very consistent with where it was headed. It was not a finalized document right. that's held up. Right. It was in process. So I think that process picks up. And I think the president, in his public remarks, has been very clear, as I re uh, repeated here today, about how much this really continues, this, this latest uh, crisis in Ukraine continues to cast um, the United States and its approach to democracy in marked contrast to autocrats in the yes. world. Um, so I think that's a continued theme that you'll see play out. I want to go back to your response to my initial question. <clears throat> and I, I agree with your response that the strategy, not just of this administration, but the previous administration, where the Congress went with the European Defense Initiative, we were concerned that Russia may do this again. It wasn't the first time Putin right. invaded a country in Europe. Georgia, obviously, was, was, was a, the first during uh, Putin's reign. At the same time, I think it's reasonable to say that deterrence didn't work. Meaning, we, we anticipated this, we thought it was a problem, we tried to put the tools of deterrence into place, whether you want to call it integrated deterrence or some other deterrence, wouldn't you agree that we didn't deter him from what we sought out to deter him from doing? This is a war of Russia's choice. It's a war the, that can stop at any point that the Russians choose to. Um, and the Russians chose to, by all accounts, Vladimir Putin uh, chose to go forward into Ukraine. And that's a fact. Um, our focus on integrated deterrence, as I said at the Department of Defense, is fundamentally around combat credibility of US forces. And, and we're confident that where we uh, bring that to bear, that that will be the cornerstone of how we think through integrated deterrence, which I think is the question. Um, Ukraine is not a place where the United States had uh, the security commitment it has around NATO, or that it has made even, uh, for example, with regard to Taiwan, um, it, with regard to mil the military assistance side. So that's my answer, which is what we focus on in the Department of Defense is bringing that combat credibility forward. You note that, that the Russians have not attacked NATO territory. Um, uh, and we continue to stand by that deterrent as quite effective. Very smart answer, Dr. Hicks. Uh, but 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 uh, but but I, I just want to pursue a little more. Uh, no, but <laughs> if you, if it was, you did very well. Um, but but just to pull the thread on this, truly understand because you're right. From your perch in the, in the view of the Department of Defense, deterrence begins to make sure that you know we have the combat credibility that no one's going to challenge us, mm -hmm. and the next layer is challenge our, our alliance, would be NATO. But wouldn't you agree that part of what we were seeking to achieve 
certainly the last defense strategy and, and, and this administration was to deter the Russians from going into Ukraine. I mean, that, that, that certainly was part of the deterrence. I think we've all sought since the occupation and annexation of Crimea. There is no doubt that the United States has been clear that, you know, that violating the, you know, the sovereignty of another country is against uh, the principles we stand for and that we would bring all um, uh, of our thoughts to bear on how to do that. The economic sanctions that we have put into place around this particular invasion of Ukraine, alongside, importantly, not just NATO, but other countries of the world, we have not yet seen the full effects of that. And most importantly, Russia has not yet seen the full effects of that. I think those are tremendously powerful. They clearly were not convincing to Russia in advance. Not clear anything would have been convincing to Russia in advance. I'm not going to try to get into the head of Vladimir Putin. <laughs> uh, but what I can tell you is they will be devastating. They will be devastating, as will uh, all of the diplomatic movement and the companies that have self-selected out of Russia, international companies, the talent drain, tens of thousands by all accounts of high-end talent leaving Russia that I hope are coming to the United States and to the West to help us um, uh, to advance technology in line with appropriate democratic values. And I think that's the cost that he will bear. Uh, the fact that you have leaders who cannot understand rational deterrent frameworks is something we have always lived with. We have always had those who will violate international norms um, and, and ch you know, challenge us to deter them. That is why we must have the credibility to stand behind the commitments we have made, and I think we have that. So let's stick with uh, Ukraine a little bit more and then and move to China. I was going to do this later in our conversation. Let it be noted that Zakheim didn't focus on budget for the first five minutes of our <laughs> conversation. Um, but we're learning about deterrence. We obviously want to, as a, as a government, as a Department of Defense, to make sure that the sovereignty of a free nation isn't violated in the way we've seen and are witnessing it with every passing day. That's true for other countries in Europe. It's obviously true for Taiwan as well. We, that, that has got to be of prime importance, so kind of migrating from the European theater in Europe to the Indo-Pacific and dealing with, with China. In part with this strategy and part of what you're doing every day in the department, what more do we need to do to restore the deterrence, right? To make sure that even if it's not a NATO ally or another country in the Pacific that we have an alliance with, Taiwan's interesting, it's kind of more complicated as, as you know well. What else do we need to do to restore deterrence so whether it's a Putin or a Xi, they don't come away from what's happening right now and think, I can get away with this? So we are facing what I would call complex uh, attack dynamics from both China and Russia. They span the spectrum of conflict from day-to-day -day activity through what often is called gray zone or hybrid, the Europeans prefer hybrid activity, um, and all the way up through advancing their nuclear capability. Um, the United States has traditionally been far less agile across that spectrum of conflict and, that, and at pulling together um, all the elements of the domains of conflict. 
Um, we have talked about this, obviously, as you were referencing in this strategies, integrated deterrence. Folks have talked about this as cross-domain deterrence, comprehensive approaches. There have been lots of terms used. Um, there's a, a strong thread of continuity, frankly, in that. Um, but we chose integrated deterrence because we think it, it helps to communicate this idea that to deal with these complex attacks vectors and to, to have this deterrent effect, you have to be equally agile. We in the United States need to overcome a lot of cultural uh, barriers internally to how we work across that spectrum, first inside the military and then, from our perspective, first inside the military and then into how we work with allies, partners, and others. I think that's the core um, and executing that through our campaigning approach in a day-to-day -day way, exemplifying that we can gain advantage in a day-to-day -day way through campaigning as we build that enduring advantage over the long term. Those three approaches really are our answer to your question about how we, if you will, ensure uh, deterrence. And, and we, we actually dealt with this a bit in, during the National Defense Strategy Commission's work reviewing the last administration's National Defense Strategy and, you know, it was kind of how you deal with the this, this steady state of competition, mm -hmm. right? Because yes. it, it wasn't what we're witnessing in Ukraine, but it was all the other things that were happening, you know, from Little Green Men to the cyber realm to space mm -hmm. realm. But I, I wonder um, if we were not necessarily successful at that, but the fact that Putin decided to take the form of aggression that was so conventional, right? Tanks, and mm -hmm. missiles, and aircraft. Um, did we? Are we get? Is it kind of our eye off the ball from deterring that type of conventional attack, both in Europe? Did we? Did we missing something in that deterrence framework? Mm -hmm. um, the traditional type of deterrence, which you know maybe just having the raw steel platforms that we we had in the last century that we need today. And do you do you worry about that when it comes to Taiwan? I mean, you know, uh, people talk about. Uh, deterrence by denial, which is mm -hmm. an approach that relies heavily on conventional capabilities. It doesn't necessarily have to be in conflict with integrated deterrence, but it certainly makes it primary um, um, in terms of how you might deter a China vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. So um, I think where I would differ a little bit is this, you, you should always think about an adversary as being pretty smart. If they're not smart, that's great. <laughs> um, but they are looking for your weaknesses. And the answer is to minimize your attack surface area and maximize your advantages, your relative advantages. Um, in the case of Russia, they have taken a conventional approach. It's not worked well. Um, so we can talk about why that didn't work well. But I would also say back to the what the US has been doing since 2014, we have built substantial conventional capability alongside allies and partners, this is not just the US, but to include the US in Europe and inside the bounds of NATO territory. And that conventional deterrent, and I will add our nuclear deterrent, seem to be holding very well right now. Um, we will continue to always look to strengthen those. At the same time, if you re relieve uh, the deterrent elsewhere, Smart adversary is going to go to those spaces. That's what we have seen the Russians trying in different ways. Cyber is obviously one. Attacking democracy and information warfare is another. Um, uh, you know, the, the corruption, if you will, is another. Chemical warfare in, um, uh, in support of Assad in Syria is another. Um, so it just requires the United States to be very thoughtful about how we ensure we can deter. Um, that's my Russia answer. 
let's go to, to budget. Sure. Um, so the, the National Defense Strategy fact sheet, um, and then in your March 28th kind of gaggle of reporters, mm -hmm. uh, the release of the budget and, and the defense strategy, you talk about the continuity, actually, uh, in the force planning co construct mm -hmm. of the strategy, which, kind of using imprecise language, is you know, prevail on one and deter in a second. Um, that's what the Trump administration's mm -hmm. national defense strategy has. And uh, based on, on, on your statement, that's what the Biden administration force planning construct will be as well. I think that's great. You know, it, it, to me, it's an it's, uh, area where there should be continuity and recognition that we can't become so regionally focused that we take our eye off the ball elsewhere. Certainly, events um, uh, reflect the, the wisdom of that approach. Of course, to do that, um, you need a budget that could support that reach, mm -hmm. uh, a budget that is truly trying to build a force that's uh, global in nature. Um, and many people who are concerned about that kind of force planning construct look at the budget and say, you see, you're not resourcing this strategy seriously enough that can sustain that kind of force planning construct, that type of strategy, in which case we just have to realize we're going to do less with less and make some hard choices. What's your answer to that critique? Uh, we have a quarter, more than a quarter of a trillion dollars uh, dedicated to defense. As I said in my remarks, it's 8% above what we asked for last year. We matched it to the strategy, sort of known as somebody who does my homework. I promise if anyone opens the books, I've done the homework. And we have matched those. Um, uh, uh, let's talk about inflation maybe as a separate answer because I want to come back to inflation. We have um, put together a program uh, that I am very comfortable can execute that force planning construct. And I just want to add also the mm -hmm. nuclear deterrent and also the homeland piece, which is a little more aggressive on homeland, if you will, or more focused than um, uh, in 2018. So um, that I, I'm very comfortable with. We have built out the capabilities that we need to do that. I think we get very focused in this town because it's simple. Um, on sort of just the dollars. The dollars matter. We have to have the dollars. Um, but it, it, we also get very focused on numbers, uh, number of, you know, this type of system versus somebody else's that kind, sort of missile gap kind of theory. Um, we need to look at what the U.S. needs to execute the concept of operations and campaign that makes sense for us. Maximize, I said before, maximizing our asymmetries, minimizing the attack surface vectors folks can come at us on. Um, and I think we've done that with this uh, program that we've put together in this budget. So you're kind of anticipating the, sure. the, the critique of divest to invest. And certainly the budget um, you know, has cuts 24 ships, 150 aircraft. We have aircraft carriers that don't actually have enough aircraft uh, um, to, to utilize the whole purpose of that. Uh, platform, you know, we just kind of came out of a conversation, so I'm arguing with you right now, you know, that the, the <laughs> that, you know, kind of conventional capability mm -hmm. is something that is essential. Um, you have a force planning construct that says we need to do this in two theaters, at least, it's not, you know, near simultaneous, simultaneous, I haven't seen the classified piece, but I assume it, you're dealing with simultaneity. And then, of course, the strategy talks about the Middle East and then uh, other challenges and threats that are not necessarily regionally focused. Um, I just kind of come out of this moment where it seems that those platforms and numbers matter more. You say it's simple, but simplicity has an elegance all of its own because it's just right. 
So, um, you know, I, we just are a smaller force with it doesn't seem to be a, a mission set and a strategy that's asking us to do less. So give me a little more about sure. why why yeah. I just don't have to worry about the numbers and the capabilities and the platforms. We absolutely have to worry about the capability. And capability includes uh, your, your, your ability to disperse and the quantity of what you can deliver matters. So um, that I'm not saying there isn't an issue around overall capacity. But you, you, we do have to elevate, we have to elevate this conversation. So capacity might mean, for instance, um, what is my firepower, not how many platforms does that firepower move from? What is my ability to shoot and scoot, to use uh, folks maybe more familiar now with the artillery battles going on in Ukraine with that basic concept, but the maneuverability of our force. Um, versus, for instance, as the Russians are seeing, lines of tanks, you know. So quantity, you know, is not going to be the way to think about the capability set we need for the future, while it still is an input to, capa to overall capability. Um, so let's learn from the Russians uh, uh, in what their experience is right now that we're seeing, um, you know, losing their lead cruiser. Uh, because it doesn't have adequate air defense. How is, that, how is that kind of approach that doesn't take into account the survivability and capability of our forces? If we lose that out of the conversation, we are not using taxpayer dollars wisely. So I think you do have to go to the specifics of how do we have a combat credible force? How do we show that? One year into this administration, how have we built effectively on what we inherited to develop out capacity and capability for the future. Where is the industrial base? Something that you all care very much about appropriately and wonderfully here. You know, one of the biggest challenges we face, we can't magic capability overnight. We need workforce. We need to have manufacturing capability in this country. We need steady, clear investment strategies that demonstrate where, the, where that market is going so companies can plan. And we need to bring in small business, uh, which we've lost 40-some percent of our small business space um, uh, out of the defense sector. That's where the innovation comes from. We can't just say we're going to build all these new fill-in-the-blank ships, et cetera. I, you know, you got to look at the industrial capacity. you got to yeah. build that out. I, I want to get to that in a second and then, and then inflation. One more on this. Yeah. This is a lot of fun for me. I'm yeah. enjoying this conversation. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Um, so. All, your response to, to my pressing you on conventional capability, I think conventional capability means more at this moment, and, and we, our, our, our program should reflect that. Your response is we got to be smart. Um, look at how Russia's failed and failing. They did not succeed in Kiev. We'll see what, Kiev, we'll see what happens sure. in terms of the rest of Ukraine. But one of the things that we saw, we were on the commission together. I'm curious what your experience is uh, since uh, returning to the Department of Defense is, you know, the strategy wasn't actually operationalized. The concepts of how we wanted to fight you know, weren't quite clear. The new systems um, that were going to realize this new fight, that make it less reliant on a tank or a fifth generation fighter, you know, the, the replacement wasn't identified. And we certainly were in procuring. It wasn't in the program. And there was this concern about this gap, right? Sounds like you're confident that we're, we're there or we can get there pretty soon. Tell me more about sure. the transitioning yeah. from perhaps 20th century warfare and combat to you know, where you're going, yeah. which is the 21st century smart fight. I mean, is there yeah. there there? Yeah, so um, uh, now I'm having fun. So the way I, the way I talk about this often is three minutes. It took minutes. 25 minutes, OK. Yeah, so, so um, 
you know, I am out there proselytizing about a three fit up approach, and you are hitting on the core challenge that every, it does matter the administration, every defense planner faces, which is what do I need now? And the now for us, um, you know, is 23 to 27. That's the future years defense program, that, that five year program that we're focused on right now. 2027, obviously, a notable year um, in China with regard to the capabilities that they have publicly put forward they want to have with regard to Taiwan. So what you're faced with in the immediate is what can I do, which is, which is going to be less on new capital investment that takes a long time to come to fruition in order to have maximize that deterrent, that campaigning and deterrent capability today. Um, there I would say there, there are a number of, of focal areas, I won't do them justice, but to the extent that you are survivable, you're, you're cyber and space resilient, those are significant investments sure. that can come to fruition. Your munitions, uh, precision guided munitions, your continued steady pace on nuclear modernization, which we were underinvested in for so long that we're now having to pay that price. That's that first fit up. Let me jump ahead. Third fit up, force design. You know, the robots, the, you know, you name it, the all the future stuff that we all really want to make sure we can get to, um, because that's the way to make those concepts in, be enlivened and um, actualized. The challenge everyone faces is the here to there, right. and the trust and confidence of the United States Congress that the department, any Department of Defense actually has a viable pathway through that. And the lack of that trust and confidence is what keeps sliding us back so that first fit up is just the reality we live with forever. That is the task that I think I face right now as the deputy for this Department of Defense, uh, almost more than anything, is how do we build out, given the great authorities that Ellen Lord developed uh, alongside um, support from Congress in middle tier acquisition, the concept work that's underway under the joint warfighting concept effort and what the individual services are doing, Joint Force 2030 for the Marine Corps, for example. Excuse me, Marine Corps Force 2030, sorry, for the Marines. Um, that's really the challenge. How do we show that we have a viable pathway through that middle period to the force design? So we have a number of initiatives, I don't know how much time you want to get into on this, a number of initiatives underway to do exactly that. Pathway finders, making sure that digital backbone, our, our ADA initiative, our Raider initiative, which is tying the concepts to actual capabilities that can be fielded. I think that's where we have to make a lot of progress. And, and again, I think that would be true in any period of time. That's a real challenge. Not going to pursue that, although it's super interesting because I want to get to questions from the audience. And I've got two more issues I want to hit on inflation and then industrial capacity. Sure. Uh, industrial capacity, in some ways, gets back to our discussion about yep. investments and in conventional type of platforms. First on inflation. Yep. You know, I'll, I'll give you that it's 4% growth uh, from enact, enacted. Uh, but the inflator was just so incredibly low. You, and you acknowledge this in your March 28th briefing, 2.2% is just not accurate. You have the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs testified before the House Armed Services Committee saying it was obviously inaccurate. And so the reality is because of inflation, you're not going to have the buying power um, that you so need to realize this program you've just shared with us. Uh, you probably had to wrestle with OMB even to get to that 4%. You know, it's admirable, but 
the world is what it is. You know, the, the Fed increased rates yesterday knowing that it's going to take a lot more to reduce inflation. We're going to be anywhere between 8 and 10 percent by the time we get to appropriations for next fiscal year. So that 4 percent is basically going to be, you know, net cut to the Department of Defense. Feel free to disagree with that characterization. I'm interested in that. More interested in what are you going to do about it? And I'll, I'll highlight something you said on March 28th, if I can find in my notes here. But you said something to the effect of, I'm going to work with Congress through this summer on, on how to deal with this. So, you know, assuming that I'm right about inflation, 8%, what do you think is going to happen with Congress this summer? Sure. So the first thing I would say is the best, and, and I have said this on the Hill, the best inflation buster we have is on-time appropriations. That 4% is 4% more than we would get if we stay on a CR, and I think we all know we're going to be on a CR. So um, I think we need to put our money where our um, political mouths are, if you will, on Capitol Hill and get the on-time appropriations regardless of whether it's the- Is that what you meant by working through the summer just no, to get- No, okay. I'm going to come back okay. to that. Um, also for 23, we don't know what that inflation number will be. The inflator we used last fall, which is how we do it every, we, the collective we do it every year, is always just a forecast. Um, where inflation will be in September, let alone this time next year, we don't know. But we want to work with Congress on the 23 budget uh, to make sure that we have the purchasing power for this program. If at the end of the day, it's this program with uh, an inflation factor that uh, uh, is, is again going to be a projection um, by the United States Congress that we all feel is closer to accurate, and then we work on through supplementals next year anything where we're off, if for some reason that's low, I think that's a really good outcome for us. We want this program, bottom line. This summer, my point is, we have trouble in 22. And Congress had just passed the omnibus, gave a little bit of support for fuel. But the actual inflation issue is a now inflation issue, because I don't know what the inflator is going to be next year. So I have to deal with how we're thinking through this So this summer this is about period. 22? This is about right, 22. Right, with that $25 billion, whatever addition that the Congress gave in, and to realize as much as you can of that. And then 23, you're still optimistic that 2.2 2, that 2 .2 will, will hold? No, that's not what I just okay. said to you. I said, I said as we kind of go into the end game for 23 appropriations, as we would do in any year, we want to be working with Congress on you know, the collective best estimates. It's still going to be an estimate. It, it might be an estimate that's too high. It might be an estimate that's too low. If it's too low, we would assume the need to be able to come back for supplemental for 23 if we need it. But we're going to have to make you know, we have, a, we have a former comptroller sitting right here. We, you're going to have to make our best guess collectively. It's never going to be quite right. The question is how, you know, how close to right are we? How much can we absorb that inside the program? If we don't feel we can uh, absorb it, rest assured this Secretary of Defense is going to go to the president and seek assistance to get uh, further resources from Capitol Hill for the buying power for this program. What we don't want is added top line that's filled with new program that we can't support and afford in the out years, and that doesn't cover inflation. So that is my number one concern. The Deputy Secretary just gave a message to the U.S. Congress right there in terms of what, what, what uh, she does not want, as Congress may and probably will likely try to add to, uh, to the budget in part to deal with inflation, in part because other priorities. This is where I want to end, and then we'll go to questions from the audience. It strikes me that Ukraine has revealed um, many things, but one thing in particular is the limitations of our industrial capacity. Um, 
And, you know, whether you're talking about javelins, you mentioned you were at the Lockheed Martin plant recently, uh, man pads, other types of capabilities. It seems to be there's just insufficient production, you know, capacity there. Um, in your press conference in, in the end of March, you, you focus on industrial base and the need, uh, you know, for development. But in five key areas, I don't think anybody would disagree with. Microelectronics, casting and forging, batteries, energy storage, kinetic capabilities, strategic and critical minerals. Yeah. But wouldn't you say there's a sixth or seventh that's required? I'll give you an example. You know, conventional capability, even if you agree that we needed more submarines, you know, more surface ships, more fighter aircraft, like we thought that was the way we need to fight for the next decade before we did some of this future stuff, you couldn't do it because there aren't production lines to support it. We all know that undersea is, is critical, but you can only get two a year. Don't you think that should be added to the list as you talk about industrial-based capacity? And hasn't Ukraine and the conflict there reinforced that, that, that view? So I just want to um, clarify the five areas you just mentioned are su specific supply chain challenges. You're raising a broader industrial-based set of priorities, oh, yeah. and they're not quite the same thing. Um, on industrial base, we, we absolutely are concerned, for example, on shipbuilding. Um, I've visited a, a number of our facilities, um, and as I mentioned before, a, a strong theme coming back is workforce, same on munitions, which is one of our supply chain issues, um, work, workforce training, workforce availability, um, making sure we can pay the wages, the companies can pay the wages needed to attract the workers. All these are really important to getting the workforce that we need. But facilitization is also an issue when we put significant investment in on the shipbuilding side on in PSYOP, for instance, and other investments on, um, on uh, the shipyards in particular, because I do think that that's a particular pain point area. We are behind. Um, both on the submarine side and on the surface ship side um, in the production that we already have projected. Industry is trying to play catch up. Part of that, of course, is also um, uh, COVID effects um, going forward. Uh, workers who weren't able to come to work, supply, uh, suppliers in the chain falling out, et cetera. So we will have a lot of cleanup, I think, to do there. I will repeat what I said before. You can't have an industrial base without a market signal. Um, and we need to continue to have a strong market signal. The Ukrainian crisis, I think, has uh, will boost some of that market yeah. signal. But that's for a subset of types of capabilities that allies and partners and uh, the Ukrainians, for example, um, or that the U.S. may need as backfill. Um, your your reference to the man pads is a good example. The United States for ourselves, we're focused on next generation. I mean, there, there may be stinger desires, for example, um, elsewhere in the world, but we're looking ahead to what do we need next. And we need to be able to support both of them. We want an industrial base that both can support our highest priority needs for our joint force, at the same time that it can support the arsenal of democracy, if you will, for what others need. So that's a continuing priority. All right, questions from the uh, distinguished audience here. We have uh, a few minutes. Uh, again, thank Dr. Hicks for being here. We're going to go, look at that, to uh, uh, Ellen Lord, the uh, former Undersecretary for 
acquisition sustainment. Roger, and thank you so much for being here this morning, Secretary Hicks. I'm hoping that you can comment on how we as a nation are working with our close partners and allies, specifically with respect to implementing AUKUS, perhaps using some of the rather hollow authorities of the INTIB right now, and how we might leverage the demand signal in Australia to help with the lumpiness of the demand signal for industry here, and how releasability and exportability could be opened up a little bit to help that. Sure. So um, NTIP continues to be a, a, a key um, uh, leverage point, I guess, an area where we can really lean in with the UK, Canada, Australia. Um, and in the most recent package in the supplemental, we've actually um, tried to specify areas where we think we want to kind of move to an NTIB-based approach um, um, to some of the backfill requirements that we're trying to meet. Some folks more broadly refer to this as nearshoring or allied shoring, and it's really important to how we think about um, the capabilities. The, the critical minerals is a good example. Lithium's a good example where the Australians have um, um, capability there to bring to bear. On AUKUS, we are working through, of course, the submarine um, approach, but also a series of other critical technology areas and learning from both the Brits and Australians um, where there may be relative advantages each can bring to bear. Um, without getting into any detail, I would just say there are areas where the Australians on the research and development side and even into the procurement side have um, have some really good advances that we in the United States can lean on. And I think AUKUS has created a good opportunity to share that, same with the Brits, across the three of us and potentially beyond to other partners. A question over here. Hi, uh, Valerie Insano with Breaking Defense. Um, so earlier this week, the Pentagon sent a $1.5 billion reprogramming request over to Congress um, asking to shift some funds around so that the uh, Pentagon could ramp up Stinger and Javelin production. Um, you know, obviously there are some issues with, with, with both lines, Javelin's in production, Lockheed says it needs funds to expand that, Stinger's in production for an international customer, has obsolescence issues. So this money that you guys are asking to shift, what does that cover specifically? Does that help to cover some of those issues or, you know, how many Stingers and Javelins does this actually give you coming off the lines again? So the funds that were requested are a result of some of the supplemental funding we've already been provided. Um, and it's at the end of the 30-day notification period for Congress. So that's why it's coming out this week. So it's sort of been in the plans. We've had the notification. We're now approved for the Army to start working on that. So just want to clarify what that is. Um, the now begins the process of getting into exactly what you're asking, which is with those funds working between the Army in contracting and the manufacturers, trying to understand what is the smartest application of funds to get the best output. So there isn't, there isn't a um, set answer to your question yet, but what I can tell you is basically the approach is um, how to apply the funds to ramp up the production. So for Javelin, potentially going up 
you know, not, not quite double, but significantly, you know, one, I'm terrible at math in public, but, it, you know, one and a half times where they are now in monthly production, what would that take? So we're working with them right now on that. Um, and on um, uh, Stinger, a similar, a similar set of questions around obsolete parts um, and planning efforts in addition to production. I mentioned the workforce piece of it. Some of the funds might be going to the facilities. Some of it might be going to workforce. And that's something that the Army is going to be working with the, the manufacturers right now. I'll just say one more time, I, it's important to remember that those capabilities, we want to be able to produce those capabilities for allies and partners. Partners. But we are looking ahead, too, to where we want to go on our munitions. Um, and that was on track, if you will. So now it's also about um, managing through both creating that, generating that capability for others, um, some amount of backfill potentially on the U.S. side, but really making sure we're staying on track for the capabilities we need for the, for the joint force in the future. So we have a few minutes left, um, so I apologize. I'm not going to get to everybody who's raised their hand. I saw uh, Tom Carrico from CSIS. Great to see you. Good to see you, too, Tom. So in your remarks, you talked about your aggressive and focused attention to the multi-domain threat to the, the homeland. Uh, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of cruise missiles being used by Russia and Ukraine. And over the past several years, joint staff documents have talked about the threat of non-nuclear cruise missile attack to the homeland to change our political calculus. Some of your PB-23 documents uh, talk about this as well, including uh, in some UFRs. So what are, how do you think about that threat? Uh, what are some plans going forward? This is something that the NORTHCOM commander and other folks are, are pounding the table about of late. Thank you. So in, I, I'm going to broaden it a little. Tom, great to see you. Um, I'm going to broaden it a little to integrated air and missile defense, whether it's unmanned systems, low slow flyers, as, as we used to just call them, um, up through the cruise missile challenge, which um, you know we have long had that challenge from Russia to think through. Um, you know, all the way up through the more advanced threats we're seeing today, the way in which we have to think about missile defense, both regionally and here in the United States, really has to evolve substantially. So there is still um, a key component for uh, defeat um, and kinetic defeat. But increasingly, we have to be looking at opportunities that are non-kinetic, so cyber jamming, um, uh, and other capabilities, as well as detection. And cruise missiles are in one of these spaces where the detection piece is so challenging. So there we've put quite a bit of money into, uh, in the 23 request, into um, our radars and our sensing systems. Um, uh, you, you, I know, are a big advocate of and hopefully are pleased with what we've done on the space architecture in terms of sensing for this very reason. Um, but defeat is very challenged. I, I'm not, I don't want to um, sugarcoat that. And we have long uh, emphasized, and I will emphasize here today, um, our strategic deterrent and our conventional deterrent with regard to how seriously we view any kind of attack on the United States homeland, uh, whether that homeland is Guam, Hawaii, Alaska, or the continental United States. Um, a cruise missile attack or any kind of attack like that on us here at home, uh, we have to be able to rely on that full suite of capabilities and the time and place of choosing for the United States to respond. All right, we'll go two more here, and then we'll wrap up. Michael Gordon, then we'll go to uh, Lauren Fish. Uh, so one uh, strategic imperative that you and 
identified in the congressionally mandated study on the NDS, you and Roger and other notables did was to prevent a fait accompli uh, by China or, or by Russia. And that specific terminology is not in your two-page fact sheet, but it's just a fact sheet sure. for the strategy to come. I have sort of two related, I have uh, two related questions. Is it still the Pentagon's uh, objective to develop the U.S. military capability to deny uh, China the capability to uh, conduct an invasion of Taiwan? Or is the goal more general than that? That is to uh, deter China by imposing a range of military or other costs under your integrated deterrence concept, if you see the difference. Yes to the first question, undeny. Mm -hmm. And a second question is, what do you see as the lessons of the Ukraine uh, conflict uh, for your ongoing efforts to deter action in, on Taiwan? Do you, are there lessons there, and what are they? Sure, there's certainly lessons. We're not, we're not done in Ukraine, and I think it's important for us to acknowledge that lessons will build. Um, I think a major lesson is the importance, as I said before, of the demonstrated will to fight and capability to fight of the um, anyone who's trying to defend their democracy. And I think Taiwan has that as a clear takeaway, as well as you've seen in the press, making sure that they are investing themselves in the self-defense um, that they need to have. And of course, under the Taiwan Relations Act, we are here to support the, um, their self-defense efforts. So working closely with them on those capabilities. But it's not just capabilities, it's there, there are also some in, uh, institutional or um, you know, uh, there's some more reform efforts that they need uh, to undertake that they are focused on now and we're, we're there to support them on that. More broadly, I think the big takeaways are that when you get um, one of the asymmetries, as I mentioned, that the United States has, that, that ch uh, China and Russia have lacked, is that um, uh, substantial uh, throw weight of uh, market economies. Um, that when they choose to bring that to bear, it can have devastating effect. As I said, I think that will build over time here and is a big lesson, um, not just for the Europeans to sort of see what they can bring to the table, that they can also bring their um, citizens along uh, to uh, in increased investments in defense as well, but also um, what the Chinese will take away from the costs of aggression. Lauren, quick, because we're already over with the Secretary's time. Thank you, Dr. Um, quick question. So upon your confirmation, there was a CAPE memo that you had sent. There was press reporting about, including things like looking at the fighter mix in the FY23 program, as well as unmanned maritime. How have your key investment uh, areas changed, if at all, since that memo about a year ago, um, especially given events in the world? So that was not a key investment memo that was a memo on issues for the program review and we'll do we'll do another one this year um, so we always are in shifting if you will the areas that we think are most important to investigate just to clarify which is a little different than most important to invest in um, and I would say coming out of the NDS analytic work we have a we have developed out some of those areas. We have a few others we want to investigate further this year. I'll just highlight a few very broad areas, contested logistics, 
um, is one that we're very interested in, in exploring. Um, and that was before watching the Russians be so challenged on their own border. But we certainly know uh, logistics is a big challenge that we want to make sure we can protect cyber defense, for example, is a big piece of that. Um, and I would also um, uh, point to homeland defense, how we think more broadly about the way in which our um, homeland plays into challenge comp those complex threat dynamics uh, that come against, uh, come against the United States in any kind of uh, major conflict. But there will be several more than that. That's just a, a few examples. Join me in thanking Dr. Hicks, yeah. Deputy Secretary of Defense, Thank for joining us today. Stick around, we'll have a distinguished panel coming up next. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats and welcome Ms. Courtney Kuby of NBC News and our distinguished panelists to the stage. Thank you all for being here. Thank you to our, our wonderful panel here. Uh, it's hard to follow on such an interesting discussion like that, but we will try. And I think we're very fortunate because we have such a wealth of knowledge sitting up here to talk through these issues with us today. Well, my mic is very loud. So um, first off, we have, of course, uh, undersec former uh, Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, Michelle Flournoy, who we are very fortunate because she can talk to us as somebody who knows the policy side of the national defense strategy and the budget. And then we have two people who, of course, really need no introduction, but Congresswoman Elaine Loria, a Democrat from Virginia and a current member of the House Armed Services Committee. And then, of course, the Honorable Max Thornberry, uh, former chairman of House Armed Services Committee. Um, and so they can talk to us with a wealth of knowledge about the appropriations process of this. Um, so I, I want to start in a, a very general sense, because as we all know, Ukraine, Russia has really dominated the national security space for a while now. And I think realistically probably will continue to do. So despite the fact that the NDS really does focus on China, um, I'm curious what you, if you could give me sort of your broad takeaway, each of you, about whether you think, how you think the NDS, if it should have focused more on Russia, just given what's going on right now, and whether you think, how you think the overall security situation right now in Eastern Europe should be impacting the NDS more, if it should. Secretary Flora. Sure, so first of all, thanks for hosting us, Roger, and putting this uh, great discussion together. Um, you know, I actually think that the strategy got the balance about right. Um, we have a tendency, um, as, as do you know, all countries that confront near-term crises, to, to sort of focus on the, the five-meter target, the immediate challenge. And there is a risk that we could put all of our bandwidth into today's challenge and, and really underperform in terms of preparing for the future. So I think what they've tried to do by saying, look, Russia in, 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 Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the acute challenge. We absolutely have to focus on helping Ukraine um, beat back the aggression, um, make sure that we're as strong as possible in deterring any further aggression against NATO, and so forth. But we have to keep a good portion of our bandwidth focused on preparing for that more significant threat from a rising China in the longer term. And so, and you know, if you are the Defense Department of a global power uh, and a country with global interests, you've got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to be able to do both the near-term uh, crisis management piece and the long-term uh, preparation. Now, that's easier said than done, and I think, um, you know, I, I, I really like Dr. Hicks's uh, 
framework of thinking in three FIDIPs. And while I agree that the transitional middle one is the hardest one to get right and to convince Congress of, I personally believe that even on the China side, deterring China against Taiwan, there is a near-term deterrence challenge that we need to be focusing even more of our attention on. How do we ha take the capabilities we have, combine them in new ways with new operational concepts to meaningfully strengthen deterrence in the next five to seven years vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, given all of the both the actions and the rhetoric coming out of China under President Xi. You really think that the U.S. and the world has five to seven years before President Xi well, acts on Taiwan? Well, let me think it through. So right now, President Xi is pretty focused on dealing with a COVID crisis that is not getting any better. Um, his economy is suffering, and, and slow growth is always very frightening for the Chinese Communist Party in terms of maintaining their order and control. Um, and he's got the 20th Party Congress coming up where he's going to want to focus on stability and consolidating his power. I also don't think, I also think that he wants to pursue a political and economic coercion strategy first and foremost vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. The use of force is kind of a last resort, not his preferred option. Um, nor do I think his military force is ready for that. But I do think that if after five years of trying the you know, Star Trek absorption into the Borg kind of strategy, if that doesn't work, then we could be facing a situation where he's like, okay, I've got a, this is a legacy issue. Um, I wanna take care of this on my watch. I'm going to reach for the use of force because it's only gonna get harder for me in the future as the US fields more and more capability. So I do think that time frame could be a little sooner, could be a little later, but we have gotta be focused on that, um, not, not just China as a long-term, pacing challenge, but China in the near to midterm as well. It's interesting because that, that exact argument that you just made about uh, you know, a legacy issue and, and dealing with it right now, there are a lot of people who think that's one of the reasons that Vladimir Putin has Absolutely. decided on Ukraine right now. So, um, Congresswoman Luria, I'd ask the same question to you. And you, you look at this from the perspective of somebody who's sitting in Congress right now, dealing with these issues, sitting through the, the budget hearings with House Armed Services, which we all so enjoy covering as members of the media. Um, um, I, I wonder if you think what your overall perspective is on this, whether there's enough focus in the current NDS, in the current budget on, um, on Russia and Ukraine, uh, Russia specifically, given the focus on China? Um, well, I'd follow on some things that, that Michelle said. I think we have to be laser focused on China and their increased uh, aggression against Taiwan and this time frame between now and 2027. Um, and we'll probably touch on that later in the discussion, but I think there's some significant gaps in this year's budget um, to, to uh, adequately address that. But you know, I kind of look at it and think about well, where are we different now than we were a few months ago before the February invasion. And you know, if this is an opportunity, we think about we had a very different impression of Russia and Russia's conventional military capabilities prior to the current situation with their recent invasion of Ukraine. And on top of that, we have a whole host of NATO and either not NATO or soon to be NATO allies stepping up. And you know, what the last administration was trying to do is to get NATO to contribute more. Um, and we've been very surprised by Germany and others. So we actually have an opportunity where if we want to you know, leverage our allies and partners and the Europeans are stepping up to provide more um, and we have significant forces there, I think longer range, I don't think it's a question of allocating more resources to Europe because we have more players at the table who are also willing to do more along with us. So if anything, if we really want to leverage the allies and partners concept, 
we have the opportunity to allow our partners in Europe to take some more of that burden and for us to actually be able to provide more of our focus and more of our resources to the very urgent situation, you know, in this time frame between now and 2027 with regards to China and Taiwan. Do you, or do you have any concerns, some of your colleagues have talked about concerns about readiness, like one thing that, one stat that's come up is that the U.S. has provided one-third of the javelins that they had in their arsenal to Ukraine right now. I mean, looking at that, do you think that there is enough built in for, to maintain the U.S. readiness? Are you at all concerned about stockpiles getting low for that? Um, it's certainly something we're going to look at very closely um, as we continue to transfer material equipment, especially munitions, that we have adequate replenishment of those. Um, and I think, you know, if we can get more into specifically the Navy, where I focus a lot of my attention, um, I have significant concerns with the proposed decommissionings uh, of 24 ships, only building eight, um, and really the long-term capacity gap that creates. Um, it came up in the earlier conversation about the number of, of missiles, and, you know, in the Navy you might quantify that by the number of VLS tubes. Yeah. If you look in the next seven-year period, we're going to lose over 1,600 VLS tubes. Um, through the decommissioning of the remaining 22 cruisers, the SSGNs, um, and the slow procurement of new platforms. Um, you also talked earlier about the industrial base. There is capacity there. Why are we only building two destroyers a year, for example? We can build three, but there's very unclear signals being sent to the industrial base between what's in the budget and what Navy leadership is saying that they want. Um, and so I think that there's a whole host of things. It's not only the platforms, it's the munition. Um, and all of that combined together. I think we need to be laser focused on what is needed for the deterrent. I think there's a lot of talk um, about needing to be able to deter in the near term, but I don't think we're building a force to do that. And it's very clear that you can't build an entire new force in that five-year period, so we have to fight with what we have today. Mm -hmm. But we're divesting of that. Rather than being creative, investing in the readiness and maintaining those platforms that we have now that we can continue to use during that window, we're just saying, divest and invest. It's obsolete. We need to move on to new concepts that don't actually equal any weapon systems that exist today. AI, quantum computing, certainly those are part of the mix in the future, but we have to focus on the near term. Um, and I think when we look at the budget, myself and many of us on both sides of the aisle feel that this is just divesting too much with the threats that we have in today's environment. It, and um, you mentioned deterrence, and we, uh, we also heard from Secretary Hicks about um, deterrence, that that's one of the objectives of yeah. the U.S. And I would argue, it, my feeling about this defense, national defense strategy versus the previous administration is, you know, I think that what we truly need is a deterrence by denial. And to have a deterrence by denial, you have to have the force and you have to have the presence to do that. I feel that the shifting away integrated deterrence, this is really a deterrence by punishment strategy, because if you don't have the forces, there, if you don't have the forces ready, if you don't have the authorities in place, for example, and that can be a whole other discussion on the policies of strategic ambiguity and whether we need to change our, our posture relative to that. Um, but I just really don't feel like the shift to integrated deterrence is creating a force that can actually accomplish a deterrence by denial strategy in order to prevent a fait accompli. Huh. Uh, um, Congressman Thorby, I'd like you to pick up on that. And specifically, I mean, now that you're looking at this, I guess, from a step back, and you can look at, you know, hopefully you have more time than um, now that you're not on the House Armed Services Committee. Um, what do you think, and specifically whether the, the budget and the national defense strategy, whether they, I guess, have the right mix on when it's specific to Russia and China, and then also these other threats, which we should talk about today, North Korea, Iran. Um, and also, is there anything that you're looking at right now with this situation with Russia 
Do you worry about the readiness of the U.S. military and how the money is being appropriated in this budget? Yeah, I, I'm struck by how we're having some of the same debates that we've been having for a while. Back when President Obama wanted to pivot to Asia, the concern was, okay, pivot means you're turning away from something, in that case, the Middle East and terrorism was our primary concern, to focus on this one thing. Uh, and, and, and the United States does not have the luxury of focusing just in one area or on one adversary. And Putin's invasion of Ukraine is kind of like a cold slap in the face reminder that there are other threats in the world that we do have to pay attention to. Now, I'm also struck, really, by a lot of continuity in this national defense strategy that Secretary Hicks was talking about from the last one. But, but it is words on the paper. The question is, okay, what, are you what change are you really going to make that would make that become a reality. And that's where I think you do get into a 4% increase that doesn't keep up with inflation is not enough to, to deal with, uh, to implement that strategy given the world that we all see clearly now. And, and so then you start getting tensions uh, and, and that's where readiness becomes often the easiest and the quickest thing to cut. We saw that before, uh, again, in, in the latter stage of the Obama administration where we had accident rates going up and, and, and we, we were at one point where North, in the Trump administration, North Korea poses a threat and we have to move precision munitions from the Middle East to, to the, the PACOM area and then the Middle East commanders start getting worried that they're short. And, and, and so uh, I, I agree it's not all about top line in numbers, but, but it does begin the conversation of what capability you have, how much of what uh, in that budget. And so I, frankly, I was kind of encouraged to hear her say, okay, we'll take this plan, we'll be, add whatever inflation is, which is gonna be, as Roger said, pretty high, and then maybe not lose capability like these ships were going to, uh, they want to, to uh, get rid of prematurely. And, and build from there. Now, now that's, you know, that is probably an approach that does begin to implement the words that are on this paper. Are there capability gaps that, that specific capability gaps that you can point to, specifically with the threat from China, and I leave this to all three of you, that have you concerned right now? Can I, can I just jump in? I, maybe just to provoke a little debate, I have a slightly different view on, I actually do think that, you know, we heard from Secretary Hicks that the U.S. does have the objective of being able to deny uh, China, Chinese aggression success against Taiwan. But I think we, we have to be careful about the metrics, how we measure that. It's not necessarily numbers of traditional platforms. It's a, you know, this is going to be a very di uh, different environment where they have huge uh, geographic advantage. They're going to try to create a fake complete very, very quickly. Um, before U.S. forces can mass in the theater. And it's going to be a highly contested environment where ships that, you know, ships or planes or whatever that go in early into the, the threat rings that China's created would be very, very vulnerable. Um, and so, you know, deterrence by denial may not, uh, maybe require some different concepts of operation. So, for example, my favorite example came out of Iran study, which is taking long-range 
anti-ship missiles like El Razum's from the Navy, putting them on standoff Air Force platforms that can target and hold at risk. Uh, no, I love know, the idea, you know, but just, I'll tell just you. Just let me okay. finish, please. Um, and so um, I'm just saying the, we, we have to have an operational concept in mind before we start making judgments about do we have enough destroyers, do we not have enough destroyers, uh, et cetera. The, the other thing is what I do think across the board we have munition shortfalls, mm -hmm. as we're seeing um, with, you know, in terms of what the Ukraine situation has created in our own arsenal, but also, you know, this is constantly a top concern of the Indo-PACOM commander. Mm -hmm. Services constantly trade off munitions to pay for shiny objects. And I think we've, we've got to focus here. Last comment is security assistance. Big lesson from Ukraine is that after Crimea, um, the U.S., the Canadians, the U.K., other NATO members spent a huge amount of uh, time training and working with the Ukrainians to make them more of a porcupine. You know, let's become very indigestible to the Russian bear. Um, not my phrase. Tony Thomas, the CENTCOM <laughs> commander, used to use this. And, and we did a lot of similar work in the Baltics. Same approach needs to happen in Taiwan. It needs to be how do you create defense in depth, give them the asymmetric capabilities, to hold, to create costs, to make, to slow things down, to buy time for the international community to come and support. Mm -hmm. yes. um, so I'll jump right in. I think you had a perfect scene setter, and I think that the El Razum is an investment that we should definitely make. The reason I kind of jumped in is I asked the Chief of Staff of the Air Force at our hearing last year, well, how many El Razum are in this budget and how many are in the FIDUP? It wasn't even a piece of data at their fingertips. It wasn't something that was really high on the radar for the Air Force as an investment for their contribution in the Indo-PACOM AOR. I asked the same question about offensive mine laying. Again, a very inexpensive capability, but a huge asset to help create this porcupine, um, both for us to have the capabilities as well as for um, Taiwan to invest in those capabilities for their own defense. Um, and I think that you also set the scene perfectly about the different standoff ranges. We just really have not invested in a, a uh, sufficient anti-surface capability, surface launch anti-surface missile. We're still relying on the Harpoon 80 nautical mile range. It was started being developed in the 70s, um, and of course there have been improvements um, in that um, missile, and now we have Naval Strike Missile, al Razum, I mean other capabilities, but we certainly are at a disadvantage, which prevents us from uh, you know, being uh, within the Chinese missile range at certain phases um, of, of a conflict. But I also think that there are other capabilities that we just don't necessarily think about. The Navy's really bad at building small. Um, and you think about the, <laughs> the Chinese, they have very small, um, very heavily armed uh, craft, vessels that you know, have a very high, high firepower um, with longer range anti-surface missiles. So I really think we need to think about um, a mix, um, both for the dispersion, I think the Marine Corps, um, plans um, to develop um, their EABO concept. Um, but again, I just sometimes don't feel like the budgets we get follow the words that we hear. Um, because the law, the light amphibious warfare vessel that's going to carry the Marine Corps um, Navy uh, surface missiles, um, Navy strike missile, and, you know, as part of that concept for law, for um, EABO, it's delayed again two more years. If we're really looking at a near term, this is a relatively inexpensive investment, not incredibly complex vessel that would facilitate the Marine Corps' dispersion throughout the island chain in order to augment our anti-surface capability. Like, why aren't we making it a priority? Why aren't we bumping it up? Why is it pushed two more years down the road? So I, I think to sum it up, that, that anti-surface capability um, is, is really a big concern that I have. Is that something that you've communicated to the military? That, or is there any way that they can remedy that in your mind? 
Um, I think it's a right combination now. of um, it, we can get started. Uh, we have capability like El Razm. We can invest in more of it. I think it can be used more in their operational plans um, as how they disperse, disperse. So I think that we, we can't continue to wait for the perfect solution. Mm -hmm. And again, going back to the platforms, you have to have the platforms in order to deliver um, these. Yeah. And so kind of divest to invest, you know, capabilities that we may be able to develop in 20 years, like we don't have the luxury of waiting for them. So we also have to be you know, creative with the platforms that we have. So I think there are you know, potential capabilities for transferring uh, EPFs, for example, to carry VLS launchers, I think for smaller craft. Um, you know, we're going to divest of, in this budget, they want to decommission nine LCS. Well, the capability that LCS does have is that uh, surface warfare module. And even if it's a question of moving forces around, because if the LCS with a lower capability and in a less hostile environment could perform missions in other theaters, that could free up destroyers, for example, to reposition and, and be in areas where they're more necessary to the mm -hmm. fight. Because we've got to get what, to what you wrote. I mean, in 72 hours, we, be, we need to yeah. be able to target all of their you know, anti-surface capabilities and you know, that, in my mind, I've framed mm -hmm. that as like the goal for deterrence. I don't know if you've shifted from that vision. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the issue of deterrence, I'm, I'm curious because there are some people who say, you know, the U.S. In fact, Secretary Hicks talked about how the U.S. has been investing so much in the European Defense uh, Deterrence Initiative since 2014. But there are some people who say, well, you know, the U.S. has been investing all of this. They've been training the Ukrainians. They've been providing them, you know, weapons. Russia still invaded. You know, so did deterrence work here? I'm curious what you think of that, if, and and if you think that there is some way that the U.S. can shift deterrence to actually maybe deter China from an invasion of Taiwan. If there's anything that can be done, can be well, done. Um, it it is always possible for bad guys to do bad things, and you want to discourage it. Uh, you will not always be successful, which is why you need a military to win a conflict in case deterrence should fail. I mean, that's, that's kind of basics. Now, and, and you can also argue that perhaps Putin was looking not only at how many ships and tanks and planes we had, he was looking at our uh, divisions domestically and a whole variety of factors and thought maybe this is a time when, when he could get away with it. So remember, deterrence is in the mind of the adversary, and it has to be credible, uh, not only what you have, but that it, it could hurt, it could be used. Um, and, and so I do, uh, you know, to, to go back to my theme for just a second, it may be simplistic to look at top line defense budgets, but it also is a pretty clear signal to Putin and Xi of our national commitment to develop the capabilities that we're talking about uh, to, to, to defend ourselves. I, I was struck by how many times Secretary Hicks mentioned our nuclear modernization. It wasn't that long ago that that was, uh, oh, do we really need a triad? Can we get by with two? You know, I think Ukraine ends that debate. The harder question uh, when it comes to deterrence is, okay, now we not only have Russia, but we have a China that is dramatically increasing their nuclear capability. Does, is our capability credible uh, in that three-way uh, situation or not? And uh, I don't think we, my personal opinion is, I don't think we've thought enough about that. Uh, two more points right quick. Uh, I, th I, I think when it comes to us in China, 
it, it, conventional is important, as Roger was saying, but it is also some of these newer capabilities, some of which we're behind in. Hypersonics, anti-satellite weapons, you know, they have more data than anybody for AI, for example. But, but just, and so getting those non-traditional defense suppliers on the playing field is essential. Uh, but just to go back to Michelle's point, developing this capability or that capability didn't count for much unless you have the operational concepts to use them. And, and that was a key finding of the Strategy Commission in 2018, and it's still an area where I'm not sure we're quite up to snuff. Okay, we'll develop a hypersonics and a this and a that, but what are we gonna do with it? How are we gonna use it? I think that's crucial. Can I add something on top of what Max said? Is I think it's, there's the operational concepts, but there's the authorities piece. And when you look at a China-Taiwan scenario, there is a significant, I think we need to have a significant debate in Congress about authorities. Hmm. Um, because if you have massing of forces on the coast of China, you have indications that they're gonna cross the strait, but we can want to be a deterrent by denial and we can want to intervene, but what authorities exist to do that? If you look at the War Powers Act, we can't just introduce forces where hostilities are likely without coming to Congress. Um, and we really aren't clear. I mean, our strategic ambiguity is obviously ambiguous. So, I mean, I think it really is time to have a debate about strategic ambiguity. My personal opinion is I think that we should have strategic clarity. I think we should say um, that we will come to the defense of Taiwan in order to maintain the status quo. And I think that last part is, is important. Um, but I think those debates are really not being had in Congress because I think the president is gonna need decision time, essentially. Um, and if you're going to wait to come to Congress while they go 140 nautical miles, you know, those things just don't happen that quickly. So I feel like the time is now to be having those debates. Are you saying that you think there should be like an NAUMF for um, Well, I think that if we had strategic clarity, I think it would, then everything would fall in behind that because there would be no question that that would be our national policy that we were going to come to the defense of Taiwan. If we wait to have that debate until, um, you know, there are forces moving, um, I think that that delay will lead to a fait accompli. Because the underlying sort of idea and strategic ambiguity is still supposed to be the idea that the U.S. would defend Taiwan, right? I mean, I think that is an assumption of it. But it also opens up the, the issue of strategic simultaneity. So, you know, Secretary Florino, you said that you think that there's five to seven years before China actually acts on Taiwan in a military perspective, but if they were to speed that up, where the U.S. is right now with this huge investment in Ukraine, helping out with the fight against Russia, the war against Russia, do you think if China were to act on Taiwan today or tomorrow, would the U.S. be able to come to the defense of Taiwan? Is the U.S. ready for that right now? Not the way we need to be. I, I, would, I, I think that the U.S. would come to Taiwan's defense if the aggression were unprovoked. Um, uh, but all of the wargaming that we read about in you know, Michael Gordon col columns and so forth <laughs> suggests that if we just play with what we have, if we, if we confront this with what we have, it's, you know, the results are suboptimal and they, there's a lot more risk than we should be accepting in that scenario. So I think there's a lot that needs to be done. I don't want to say that we couldn't deter, um, but it would be more by cost imposition than by denial. We want to get to the point where we can actually deny their success. Um, um, I just want to say that I think part of this equation of rapidly fielding new capabilities 
is um, sort of building again on what uh, Secretary Lord did when she was undersecretary for acquisition, which is really creating a much more like a, a, a speed a speedway or a highway for largely commercial technologies to be more rapidly um, integrated into the force. Um, we need to get. We, there's AI. There are AI tools today that can give us huge decision advantage. They need to be in every COCOM. They need to be, you know, in joint, you know, in up and down the entire chain of command. We should be leveraging those now because if you have more accurate, faster uh, decision than your adversary, that's going to be a huge advantage. There are things today that we could do to build our resilience on the cyber side, in the space side, that we should be investing in right now, largely commercial. Doesn't need a new military requirement. Doesn't need to go through the traditional 5,000 acquisition process. Okay. It, it just, we need to create that fast track and, tr excuse me, train and incent acquisition professionals to really be sort of special ops, you know, acquirers of commercial technologies, which we really haven't done at scale yet. So. Um, there, there's a under, unmanned systems, um, whether it's UUVs, UAVs. This is a critical part of regaining capacity and mass in a theater um, that's you know very far away from us and, and in the backyard of a potential adversary. So there's just a lot in that regard that we can do as well. That's a key, um, should be a key element of how we're trying to bolster deterrence in the near to midterm. Is, do you, you mentioned Secretary Lord, but is, is, do you think that right now is the Pentagon being aggressive enough and pursuing? I think um, they're starting to lean forward on this. I'd like to see them lean forward even more. One of the challenges is we need to be able to bring along uh, Congress, particularly appropriators who tend to be very rightly conservative about how they spend taxpayer dollars. Um, but we're in a little bit of a catch-22 where you know, someone like the Navy will come and say, you know, we'd like a f uh, to buy a few unmanned surface vehicles so that we can play around with them, experiment, develop a new operational concept. And the Congress comes back and says, or the appropriators say, no, 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 you don't, you clearly don't know what you want to do with these things, so why would we let you buy? You can have one. Uh, and, they, and the Navy says, but I need more than one to experiment, to create a operational well, you don't but come back to us when you know what you want to do. So you're in this catch-22 because of risk aversion. We, this is a time when we have to lean forward a little bit to allow experimentation, concept development on a more rapid basis and accept a little bit of risk that we might have a, a, some failures in the development and concept process that we learn from and then get to a better answer. Congresswoman, I, I'm curious what you think about that as somebody who you know has the purse strings. Do you? Agree. Um, well, authorizers and appropriators, I think we kind yeah. of view it differently. We're certainly, I would say certainly on the Armed Services Committee, I think we're more forward-leaning. I mean, we were all in to adding that $24 billion additional last year, and I think we really did it differently, more thoughtfully on the House side than the Senate side. They just took the unfunded list where the line cut off, that's what they cut off. And I think on the House side, and I worked a lot with Mike Rogers from Alabama, Mike Gallagher, others, you know, we really focused on what are the things that are needed for the Pacific. And so it was, you know, the Navy only came to us and requested <coughs> one destroyer last year. You talk about sustaining industrial base, you got to build at least two destroyers a year because you have two shipyards that, you know, we have to keep operational in order to sustain that industrial base. Um, but we preserved two cruisers. We added a lot to Pacific defense initiatives, you know, so we were really focused on the China scenario. Um, but, you know, I think that there have been questions about, you know, well, we want to come and bring before you this idea of an unmanned surface vessel. Well, 
you're going to build a non-man surface vessel. Like, what are you going to put in it? What are you going to use it for? It's only going to have 16 VLS cells. Well, we can show you a whole lot of other platforms right now that we could put 64 VLS cells on and that you could use the concept, but it doesn't actually have to be unmanned. It could be minimally manned, and that could be done at a very low cost. So you, could, we, you could have eight EPFs, for example, with VLS launchers. The cost of building eight EPFs is the same as the cost of one Flight 3 DDG. Huh. And think about the amount of firepower that you get out of that, for example. Um, so I think that there's a balance between their being able to explain what they want the platforms for, and there's a history. I mean, there's a history of failed shipbuilding programs that we've lived through. It's LCS, DDG 1000, you know, the Ford, we're getting there, but it's taken much longer than we anticipated. So I, you know, I think that there is both the history of it and the lack, in my mind, of clarity of, you know, what are you going to do with this? Mm. And for some people who operated ships, uh, you know, on the technical engineering side, you know, I mean, it, it, one is really doubtful that you can have an unmanned surface vessel that can operate for that period of time at that range. We can't even get to minimally manned in the Navy surface force. How are we going to get to unmanned? Huh. So, Congressman, I'm, I'm curious. We, one thing we haven't touched on at all here is the threat from North Korea and Iran. Uh, North Korea just launched a ballistic missile. We had, I, I was struck um, earlier this week, the Japanese defense minister was meeting with Secretary Austin. And he talked about the threat from North Korea as being imminent, which isn't a word that we hear often in North Korea right now. Um, and I, I'm curious if you think that the way that the NDS is structured, it sort of has North Korea and Iran as sort of this like secondary threat, right? If you think that that is appropriate or if there needs to be more focus on the threat from North Korea. And then if you think that the, the budget, if it reflects enough of the development for the threat that's posed right now from North Korea. Yeah. Uh, short answer on that is no. Uh, and, and again, what you see, it, it's a dynamic situation. So if North Korea thinks we're distracted by Ukraine, then the logical thing is, ah, this is the chance that we can get away with something that we might not have been able to get away with before or at lesser cost or something. And Iran is the same. Okay, they're pulling out of the Middle East. Uh, now this is the time to to push our allies in Yemen to you know do more against Saudi and and, and others there. So so you will have aggressors always looking to take advantage of opportunities, and I think that's what you're seeing now. So what do, what do you do about it? Uh, as as Elaine said at the beginning, you got to keep your eye on the main thing. Uh, for us, as they say in the NDS, the most consequential threat is China. But you also have to have the capability to deter other kinds of aggression, uh, whether it be in Europe, Asia, or, or the Middle East. And, and so that does get back to, okay, does a 4% increase that does not keep up with inflation really meet that standard uh, when it comes to, to implementing? And, and, I, and I, don't, I don't think it, it does. Uh, if, if I can chime in just for a second on, on what they were saying, I do think that uh, uh, there has to be a partnership between the administration and Congress, and there are cultural issues in both uh, the Pentagon and Congress on being able to move at the speed that events require. So if North Korea decides in short order they're going to do something, we have to be able to move appropriately at that speed. And a budget process that takes two years to ever even maybe get the money uh, appropriated that in, before you ever start building something doesn't cut it. Mm. I, you can't treat everything the same. 
uh, carriers and you know big expensive things are one thing, but a pool of money for AI applications, for example, which the National AI Commission recommended Congress do, more of a portfolio approach for these fast-moving technologies uh, does help, I think. And when it comes to some of these threats, uh, especially from China and to a lesser extent North Korea and, and Iran uh, and, and Russia, but, but with some of these threats, that sort of flexibility of funding, I think, would help augment what Congress and Secretary Lord have done as far as the acquisition authorities. They're in place, but you've got to deal with the culture and the money to actually get something out of it. Is there anything else other than AI that you think that there could be that sort of like a pool of funding that might be applied? I, I think ship maintenance is one, maintenance. and there have been pilot programs on that, but I think multi-year money for that, because we have huge delays when there are CRs um, uh -huh. on that. Um, and just another thing about, you know, resources and how they're allocated, I mean, it was before I came to Congress, but you authorized the Sea-Based Strategic Deterrent Fund. And if you look at removing some of that burden from the Navy's shipbuilding budget because, you know, that leg of the triad, and I'll agree firmly with you, the nuclear deterrent remains the cornerstone of our national defense, like we have to keep the Columbia class on track um, and being able to relieve some of that pressure from the Navy shipbuilding budget through the sea-based strategic deterrent fund. I think the authorizers are always willing to do it, but it, you know the appropriators have never appropriated any funds through that. Yeah. The other thing I would add is I think it has to be, it's, AI is important, uh, absolutely, but a broader category of kind of bridge funding for innovation adoption. So right now what you're having is many new innovative technologies being demonstrated or piloted. You know, you, you go to AFWorks or Softworks and you win the, you know, you're the best in class. And then they'll say, and wait 18 to 24 months and we'll get you in the program in 24 or 25. And for small companies, it's like, that's a death sentence. I mean, they can't. So we need to have a, a pool of money that says, now, you know, based on the successful prototype, we're going to continue to develop that capability to get it ready for full-scale production when you can actually get the programmatic funds there. Those kind of bridging funds are absolutely key for a whole range of, of um, you know, ready and emerging uh, uh, technologies. Huh. Uh, one more thing, if I could just say. Um, you know, every time we have a crisis, there's a, there, we, we make progress in making the system be more responsive and rapid. And then when the crisis is over, we revert back into you know, being stodgy and slow and bureaucratic. Um, there have been amazing um, innovations to, in the de declassification use and sharing of intelligence in this crisis that we should not lose going forward. There have been huge innovations in getting things released and moved into the hands of um, uh, our allies, and particularly Ukraine, um, that we should not lose um, going forward. And so I think part of um, what we need to do is try to hold on to some of those innovations and some of that progress when the crisis is over. Um, I want to open up to audience in just a moment. Before I do, uh, Congresswoman, I just want to ask you one thing as Navy veteran. Um, Secretary Hicks spoke all about investing in people. And I'm wondering if you think that the current budget does enough of that. Um, well, if you this is sort of a personal thing back home. I mean, we've had some tragic losses on the George Washington, for example, recently. Three suicides in rapid succession, and something similar happened on the George H.W. Bush when they were in an availability. And I think it is a time, you know, there's always talking about investing in the number of people and in strength. In strength has to match, you know, the platforms, and I think the Navy's budget they presented this year 
they're roughly you know equal the requirements are there but you know I think investing in people especially junior enlisted I think the Navy through this process of evaluating what's happened on the George Washington um, and beyond um, in the ship repair and availabilities um, and the stresses on junior sailors there I think that that really highlights some investments that we need to make in people and quality of life um, and you know in people as well as you know how we assign our most junior sailors and what types of environments they work on so it's multifaceted it's not just the resources for people but policies as well um, and I think the Navy and their study will come out with some recommendations that will guide us um, but you know from my own observation visiting the ship earlier this week I can and personal experience there um, I can say that there really are investments that that are necessary um, to ensure the future health of our force are there any recommendations that you're aware of that the Navy is going to make so I don't know I can't speak for the Navy but I can say that you know for ships for example at Newport News shipbuilding there's an R a carrier RCOH refueling mm -hmm. ongoing for perpetuity we have eight more carriers to refuel that are either built or going to be built 40 to 50 years we will have sailors living in an industrial environment I think we need to invest in things that don't sound you know they're not the sexiest new missile system but you know we have to have the sailors to operate the equipment and to fight the fight things such as barracks and single sailor housing yeah. and parking I mean it sounds very simplistic but that can add a friction point where people are taking a two to two and a half additional hours each way to get to and from work and then living and working in an industrial environment so we have to look at those and we really I think our community with partnerships as well um, between federal, state, and local, um, because I think you know having the shipbuilder there is you know something that drives the economy in the region. So I think we need to look at pairing across you know all levels of government to make sure that we can invest in those things. If I could add a point on talent management, I think all of the services are sort of in a 20th century talent management approach and could could certainly get even more out of the incredible talent that's in service. I'll give you one example. Uh, vast majority of you know officers who come out of the academies or um, NROTC or ROTC or uh, Air Force ROTC programs are STEM graduates. Um, those are the folks who the scholarships uh, go to, by and large. Um, but once you're once you're in, it's like you know you're become a general you know an officer of the line. You're going to be placed wherever. Very few people actually use their their engineering uh, backgrounds. Um, there's so much STEM talent in the force that we're not actually leveraging because we haven't created career paths that rewards, promotes. You can't make general officer or flag officer as you know a technologist. Yeah. It's very difficult. Um, and so I think really you know better um, investing in developing, managing, placing, allocating the talent we have is part of the solution as well as attracting uh, additional quality talent from outside. And I think building on top of that as well, I think that you know, in the process of design, procurement, acquisition, we've lost that expertise, the engineering level expertise within the military in uniform. There's no more rickovers, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, if it's um, you know, marine engineers, ocean engineers, naval engineers, you know, kind of all of that capacity to provide that oversight, so we don't go down that path of those. You know, whether I feel like there's not enough oversight within the services over those programs, and that leads us down some of those paths of programs that ultimately are not successful. So I think a combination of that with the needs of the services themselves to use that talent to a better effect is important. It's interesting to have that conversation too right now when there's a, we're also hearing more about recruiting issues specifically in the Army right now too. Well, and, and I would just add, uh, recruiting and retention has been changing over time. COVID accelerated some of those change, changes. 
But one of the factors that I think we're still playing catch up on is the whole the family dynamics. Uh, to 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 retain, you really have to consider the whole family needs, and I think we're still not quite there yet. And that's something that Ash Carter made a priority when he was Secretary of Defense, but then it didn't really seem to catch on. I would also say that this is a place where you know. There have been some critics who've said, oh, you know, the department's thinking too much about diversity and inclusion. Well, guess what? Diversity and inclusion dramatically increases your recruitment pool. Why should we be focusing our recruitment on half of the population? We need to look at all across the United States, get the best and brightest from every geography, every, every type of background, every race, creed, color, gender, et cetera to bring those people in to serve their country. And if you open that aperture, you're dramatically improving your talent pool and your chances of recruiting the best and brightest. So it is, it's not a side issue. It is core to dealing with some of the recruiting, retention, and performance issues that the department you know, struggles with. Uh, I want to take a few questions from the audience. Do we have mics? Want to start? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Jada Frazier, <clears throat> excuse me, I work at the Reichshauer Center for East Asian Studies at Johns Hopkins SICE. First of all, thank you so much for the great conversation. It was really informative. Um, I want to take it back to Taiwan, of course. Um, there's a really interesting poll that came out in March that found that more Taiwanese believe that Japan would come to the defense of Taiwan uh, than believe the United States would come to the defense of Taiwan. The numbers are 43%, Japan 35%, um, the United States. Shockingly still, this poll was conducted only a few weeks after the president sent a bipartisan delegation uh, to visit Taiwan, which one of our distinguished panelists was a part of. I wanted to ask all of the panelists if the Taiwanese believe that Japan is more likely to come to the defense of Taiwan. Should we assume that that same thought um, is being held by CCP leadership? And does this failure reflect a, an inability to communicate willingness or an inability to demonstrate that we have the capability um, to come to Taiwan's defense? How do we rectify if it's either or or a combination of both? Thank you. I think that um, you know strategic ambiguity does create ambiguity, <laughs> as the as the the title would suggest. However, um, I think there are, there are challenges associated with abandoning that policy, um, particularly in terms of creating a provocation that would get China to rea to, to 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 act sooner. Um, but also diminishing this, the space that other allies and partners in the region you know, can use to be helpful to Taiwan without having to be forced to choose sides. That said, I think we can do a better job of clarifying our commitment and our resolve, both our you know, willingness to, to, to defend Taiwan under certain circumstances, meaning when if it, they're, they're not declaring independence and creating the crisis, putting it on themselves, but uh, you know, we, can, we, can, we can stretch the boundaries of ambiguity by being clear in our words. But most importantly, we can be clear in our actions in terms of the extent and to which uh, we're helping them with their self-defense, the extent to which we are 
enforcing international law in and around the Straits, the extent to which we're investing in the right capabilities and showing up again and again and again diplomatically and, and so forth. I think the biggest problem we have with deterrence right now with China is that China has created this narrative of U.S. in you know, inevitable decline and they've drunk their own Kool-Aid. So they ha underestimate us seriously. We have to, through our actions and our words over time, um, demonstrate to them that that is a miscalculation. I think that there's a cautionary tale, you know, uh, if Putin does not succeed in Ukraine, there is a cautionary tale for President Xi. Putin underestimated the Ukrainians, he underestimated NATO and the US and the cohesion and, and seriousness with which we've responded. Um, she needs to pause about, you know, because and, and, uh, he's, at, he's at very serious risk of underestimating the U.S. and the international community and how we would respond to unprovoked aggression against Taiwan. Mm -hmm. can, can I just add a couple things? Number one, uh, be careful what you say and follow up and really do what you say. That adds credibility, and I think we're still in a rebuilding credibility mode generally around the world right now. Secondly, part of, part, I'm not surprised by those numbers, partly because the shift that's happening within Japan is pretty significant. I, I tell you, I'm still blown away by Germany and, and the European changes and how encouraging that is. But, but, but we shouldn't you know, take lightly the shift that is also occurring in Japan. So we have allies that are really taking significant steps to, to step up and be a, a more significant contributor to pushing back against aggression, and that's a good thing. Uh, sir, back there. I don't know if we have a mic somewhere. Uh, uh, thank you, Brad Bowman from the Foundation for the Sense of Democracy and the Center of Military Political. Great to see each of you again. Great to see each of you again. Um, uh, Roger asked some great questions of the Secretary in the previous uh, session and talked about how we can better deter aggression against our allies and partners. Um, and Secretary Florine, just a moment ago, you mentioned security assistance. We know that uh, foreign military cells is a key element of security assistance. And, um, and it seems to me one of the key lessons from what we've seen in Ukraine is that it's much easier to arm allies and partners before the invasion than after, and that maybe we should spend a little less time worrying about provoking authoritarian bullies who are gonna probably invade anyways, and a little bit more time helping beleaguered democracies before the invasion starts. And so I've been really glad to see kind of the discussions on Taiwan. But I am mindful that there's been reporting recently that there's a $14 billion backlog in arms sales to Taiwan. I'm mindful that you know, the F-16s they want, are not, they're not gonna get for a long time. I'm mindful that the Harpoon missiles that will make them the porcupine, uh, Congresswoman Luria, that you think, that we both think they should be, may not arrive after the window that Admiral Davidson talked about for a likely attack on them. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering, I'd welcome comments from any and all of you, uh, Congressman Gallagher is looking at maybe legislation to focus on how can we can deliver arms quicker after the announcement. Things like, is the queue right? Are the, the, the countries at the top of the queue the right ones? Um, what can we provide in terms of interim capabilities? In the meantime, while they're waiting for that, what can we do in advance of delivery on training, right? We know a lot of the prohibitions on training with Taiwan are self-imposed and might be a relic of an earlier time and situation. Um, and what can we do to expedite the establishment of full operational capability? ability once they finally get those weapons. So interested in any thoughts on those comments? Thank you. Yeah, I'm very interested in the training piece specifically because there's been so much talk about how train, U.S. training the Ukraine has made such a big difference. Yeah. So 
So I, I would say, I mean, um, the FMS system is perennially uh, slow and in need of reform. Um, that's still true. But I do think that um, um, I would like to see more of a fast track uh, established, not just once a crisis happens, but for building up uh, deterrent capabilities of critical partners and allies that we, we want to accelerate the, the porcupine process, if you will. Um, so I would love to see that happen. And maybe it has to be a presidential level designation, et cetera. Um, but you do have to actually, I went lived through this in several cases in the Obama administration where we had to bump people in the queue and reorder to match our strategic priorities. Um, so I think, I think that's absolutely essential. My understanding is there is now an interagency task force focused specifically on the Taiwan problem and how do we accelerate some of these deliveries. Some of them are affected by industrial-based challenges. Um, others are, you know, placed in the queue. But I think, I think there's a concerted effort to try to do exactly what you're saying um, with regard to Taiwan. The other thing that holds us up is technology release. Um, and I long, have long advocated an approach where rather than go through the whole process and at the very end ask the question, can we release this technology to this ally, um, where we're trying to build you know, deterrence capability across a number of partners in a given area, why don't we do that up front to say, you know, for the sake of you know, the building deterrence in Europe, we are going to uh, release this technology to the following allies and partners. And it's, it's a front loaded as a strategic policy decision and not something that holds up the train at the very end, case by case by case. So I think there are some reforms in process that could be undertaken that could meaningfully improve uh, the performance of the process. Anything to add? I mean, I would. Also, in addition to you know your question, the part where you address training ahead of time, um, you know, just in a broad sense, I think that our training and interoperability, and even joint operational plans um, with Taiwan, is an area that really requires focus and more attention. Um, so I think that can also be in conjunction with acquisition of new weapon systems, and bringing those online. But I think also more broadly, we need to look at that because, you know, the ball drops tomorrow. We haven't trained directly with the Taiwanese. It's not like other areas, other conflicts that we have been prepared for over time where we can drop in uh, with our NATO allies, with the Japanese, with the South Koreans, and have the infrastructure in place, the training, the common language, the ability to talk to each other. So that all also includes you know, investments and time and a focus on those issues. Yeah, and I would just add, um, you know, we still do not move at the speed the world moves when it comes to security assistance. And back to point Michelle made earlier, okay, we've got a crisis, we'll do have a task force for that crisis. Well, what about all the rest of the places that we want to make more difficult for aggressors too? It needs to be a, a broader change. And, and the other thing, secondly, we have amazing new tools now for training and simulation that are incredibly realistic and, and don't require having all the ships out burning diesel or, you know, or whatever. Uh, we need to take advantage of those. And, we, and our partners around the world can benefit from these new training and simulation capabilities and, and elevate their game. Hmm. I think we have time for one more survey. Hey, good morning. Scott Cooper at uh, Periton. Two facts have fundamentally changed on the ground here in Washington. The Budget Control Act and earmarks. 
How does that change the way you think about how we're going to fund our national defense? Um, I guess I can jump in on that. I mean, earmarks um, have returned. There's a very limited amount that goes to any defense type activities. It's limited to MILCON, and those are actually already really for programs in the queue um, to sort of accelerate them and bump them up. So really, the earmark process, I would say, hasn't had any effect on the, the defense um, spending or how we go about that. Yeah, and I'd just say on the Budget Control Act, thank God it's gone. Uh, and now we can look at, at how dangerous the world is, what our needs are, and have a budget that matches. Or, you know, we have that opportunity now. We, it was, we had to use uh, workarounds with, uh, with, with, not supplemental, what do we call it? Um, OCO. OCO funding, thank yeah. you, uh, to, to work around it before. And now you can be more, more transparent. So uh, I, I think probably that's a very good but development. I, I agree, but the, the real problem we have now is, you know, continuing resolutions forever because constraints your new starts at a time when innovation and new starts are key to getting us to the capability we need for the future. Um, and, and it just, it doesn't, it, it, we heard Secretary Hicks talk about the importance of the department being able to send clear and consistent you know, signals to the market, to, to industry on where to invest, where to put your R&D, all of that. And continuing resolutions undermine that. It, it creates this unpredictability and, and, you know, investors and companies feel like they can't, t you know, put, put the extra money into something that, you know, they, that might reach fruition five, ten years from now because it's just too much uncertainty. So I think that's the next thing we've really got to go after. Extremely difficult in the pol polarized political environment that we are in, but it has real implications for defense and national and, security. And the signals don't just go to the market. Those signals go to Putin yeah, and she yeah. and other people. Yeah. So yeah. it is a crucial thing for us to do better on. I'm sure y'all will. Yeah. <laughs> it's all up to you. So when you were chair, we passed the bill out of the committee unanimously, right? So maybe you need to come back. No, no, no. <laughs> on that lovely bipartisan note, <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you to the Reagan Institute. Thank you to our wonderful panel up here for a fascinating discussion and all of you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.